Love Talk Radio. Hello, Brian? Yes. Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, I don't know what, what's going on with our music. For some reason. There we go. Oh, that's oh, okay. We're having that's a little okay. technical difficulties at Blog Talk Radio, but that's all right. We're still on live. Well, we have a powerful, powerful show. You know what? That's that's probably the reason that it's doing that, because of the guests <laughs> that we have on tonight. We He's got so much energy that it's just knocking out everything else. <laughs> that's all good. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. But you know what, Brian? We, we had our guests on one time before, mm-hmm. and uh, the shows went through the roof. And yeah. I won't say that it was for a good reason. It, it was, but it was also for a sad reason. We yeah. had so many of our guests that were saddened by the things that they heard. They've been, you know, it's all it's been on CNN, it's been on all the news, and people want to know the truth. They want to know why is this taking so long? Why do you have to go through all of this to find out what? our guests and the other guys that went through what they went through. And it's a sad, sad situation. But you know what, Brian? The truth is going to come out. Oh, absolutely. You know, they say the truth always comes out in the wash. Yeah, it's going to come out. And we have a powerful, powerful show tonight, Brian. And you know what? I don't want to waste any more time because I know he's ready to talk and we're ready to listen. Well, you know, I want to first uh, just read an excerpt. Good. from his book. Actually, it's uh, on the cover of the book, and it's something that one of the authors of the New York Times bestseller, A Child Called It, and the recipient of a National Jefferson Award, Mr. Dave Peltzer, said. He says, Roger Dean Kaiser does a great service to children by revealing the injustices experienced by the White House boy. His story encourages strength in others to share theirs. And on with us tonight is Mr. Roger Dean Kaiser, author of The White House Boys and American Tragedy. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for agreeing to come back on. I tell you, we enjoyed talking to you. I tell you, it wasn't um, an easy night for me to sleep after I heard the things that you went through. And, you know, I want to ask, how do you sleep now? Uh, After all of this, all these years... How are you coping, and how are you uh, being able to sleep now? Well, <clears throat> I don't think it has been probably as difficult on me as it has on some of the other fellows who actually went through that. And I think one of the reasons I've been able to deal with this better than most is because by the time I made it to Mariana, uh, I was already institutionalized, you know, having been raised in an orphanage. Now, had I been pulled out of a home with a mother and a father and a brother and a sister and a dog, I think it would have been very hard for me to deal with that, but I was already used to that type of uh, treatment. I was already used to the child abuse. Uh, mm. So I think that today I look back and I say, well, that's just the way it was for me. I mean, it bothers me. I still wake up at night. I still, you know, will lay there and think, uh, you know, somebody's behind me. Uh, that's just, that's nothing. I'll have to turn over and check to make sure there's nobody coming into my house behind me. So I still have those fears. Wow. You know, and for those who aren't familiar with the White House boys, you know, just give us an idea, uh, give some of our listeners, you know, sort of a a background into what this whole thing about the White House boys were. Okay, basically what it was back in the 1950s and the 60s, and I'm going to make this 
as short as I can to give somebody a basic uh, knowledge of the way things were at that time. Back during that era, era, uh, there was this mean and evil guy named Elvis Presley who was coming onto the scene, shaking his leg and corrupting the youth of America. And so society was saying, well, we're not going to have any of that nonsense or foolishness. So anybody that sort of went along with that program and was singing the songs or combing their hair back or raising their collar up on their shirt, anybody that was smoking cigarettes or not going to school was automatically classified as a criminal. We're talking about boys 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And so these boys were rounded up, not so much because they were skipping school or smoking cigarettes. It was the fact that they were told not to do that. So they, therefore they became labeled as incorrigible children. And because they couldn't listen or follow direction, they were sent off to the Florida School for Boys in Mariana, which I'm sure this happened in a lot of other states also. Uh, when they got there, I mean, this was just total control. And uh, one of the, the main things they did is they would take you to a place called the White House, which we call the White House Torture Chamber. And uh, you would be beaten with a leather strap that was two pieces of quarter-inch leather with a piece of sheet metal sewn in between it. And uh, when you come out of there, you weren't just black and blue. I mean, you were as black as a car tire. A lot of the boys, including myself, had to have our clothing removed uh, from our skin surgically by a physician. The others that didn't have to be sewn up or weren't cut on their back and neck and legs and buttocks had to stand in the shower and uh, let the warm water run over them until their clothes could be peeled off. And so as this went along, things got even worse. And then boys started to, to disappear. Boys started being shot and uh, uh, buried out in the woods. And, and that's basically how it came about. Wow. Wow. That's tough. That's, that's so tough. And, and as an adult right now, and for those that probably didn't hear the first interview, how, how are you right now? Do you have your days uh, where, where certain things are said uh, by people that may trigger and take you back to that the four walls of the White House? Well, I, I, I think that may be true with a lot of the other guys. Again, I think my situation is a little different. Um, it's not so much that anything triggers me now as um, what happened in the past and the beatings and what I began to think about humanity at, you know, 12 years old when I walked out of the White House and, being cursed and called every name in the book. The bad thing is, again, not that it triggers anything. I'm already at the trigger. I'm already, that is who I have become as a person. When I wake up every morning, I am that 12-year-old boy that walked out of the White House thinking that humanity was nothing but just crap. And I get myself together when I get up every morning, and I say, okay, another day. And I sort of psych myself out. As a man, I realize that, you know, it wasn't the people at the mall or at the gas station who beat me <clears throat> and beat the other boys. And so I just sort of go through the day like that, uh, trying to do the best I can. And the old thing, you have to pull yourself up with the bootstraps, you do, but that doesn't mean that you're ever going to get over it. It doesn't mean that you're not going to feel sad. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have uh, a distrust for humanity because you certainly are for the rest of your lives, especially. And I think one of the, the main things that causes to happen just as much as the beatings is when I was in the orphanage, we'd watch this little Zenith black and white television. And here I'd watch these 
little newsreel things that come on, and here was this guy, this Hitler guy, whoever that was, over there killing people and burning them and putting them in ovens and putting them in little camps and stuff. And then I go to the reform school, and we're treated the same way. Um, wow. So I already had a thing in my head that humanity was just a terrible thing. And, of course, it wouldn't have been so bad had I thought that only happened overseas. That's just everybody else. America would never be like that. Well, I experienced it here in America, and so my distrust for all of humanity just sort of became who I am as a, as a man today. If you if you would, we have a lot of people listening right now. I'm in Facebook, and they're 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 joining in. They want to know what was or is the White House. Well, the White House is a small <clears throat> white building. Um, it's made out of concrete with steel rebar, uh, you know, to hold in the sound when the boys are being beaten. There was a large fan in there, which was, I won't say it was as loud as as an airplane engine, but it wasn't far from it. And this was to keep the, the screams of the boys uh, from being heard outside. Uh, basically, uh, it, if I was to tell somebody, well, you were taken in a cell and you were beaten, most people would say, okay, well, they took them like into, they have a this visual picture of like a clean prison cell with a little toilet in it and a little sink and a little bed. It's not like that. The only way that I can describe it, and there's a lot of pictures on my website of it. It's like you would be taken into a castle, and you go into the deepest, darkest part of the dungeon. And that is the smell. There's this musky uh, smell. Um, there's this almost uh, a wet uh, feel to it. And the walls are sort of corroded, and there's almost like a, uh, a rust coming out of the walls from the steel. And... Uh, the cells aren't very big. I could actually almost reach across them just putting my hands out. And, uh, of course, today there's blood on the wall, blood on the floor, and blood on the ceilings. I was in there uh, after 50 years. I was in there on November the 20th when we sealed the building and put a plaque up to all the boys who had suffered, you know, the White House beatings. Mm. Wow. You know, the one thing that I think many people, um, when they when they first started to listen to this program or maybe to the other program, may not have realized is that it wasn't like you were maybe beaten one time or maybe the kids got beaten one time. This was routine. Yeah, this was almost, uh, well, I would like to say it was almost daily. It, 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 it was, but it wasn't like if you were caught uh, stepping off the sidewalk, which is considered being out of bounds. Or if you're walking down the sidewalk in a line like you would see, you know, soldiers marching. Uh, that's how we boys went to work and went to the dining hall and, and, and the hospital. And if one of the boys got brave enough to sort of push you where you'd step off the sidewalk, they knew, uh, he knew that that was going to, and it was all a joke. It was like uh, you'd get a beating if you, if you were seen. Well, what they would do is they'd say, all right, you stepped out of bounds. Say, well, I didn't do it. And you certainly weren't going to what they call rat on anybody because that would be even worse because they'd get you at night. The boys would. Mm-hmm. Um and so uh, they would call you and they'd say, all right, uh, today is uh, Tuesday. You'd be at Mr. Haddon's office on Saturday. And there were boys that went to the White House that never came out alive. And when you had to spend Tuesday night in bed, now remember, you're talking 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old boys. Mm-hmm. Tuesday night, Wednesday, Wednesday night, Thursday, Thursday night, Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday, Sunday night, however, however long it would be. You had to appear at his office on Saturday morning. This was like knowing that you were going to die. 
and the minutes were counting down. That's, that is the terror. That was almost as bad to me as the beating, was the waiting, was waiting, waiting to die. The mental torture. Yes. You know, and uh, some of that stuff, I would imagine, stayed with you even after you left. You know, and let me ask, what? when did you finally leave the White House? Or the facility. Uh, well, I left Mariana. I went there in April of 1959. I was 12. Actually, I was older, but I'll say I was 12 because I did think I was 12 at the time. The records indicated I was 12. I found out later I was actually older. Uh, I went in April of 59. I got out near the end of 59, went back in 60, the beginning of 60, and then got out near the end of 60 because, again, I refused to go back to the orphanage, so Judge Gooding uh, uh, refused to... Uh, do anything with me or didn't know what to do with me and and uh, because I refused to go back to the orphanage uh, they sent me back to Mariana you know the second time so you went back so you you did basically two stints there right wow wow, wow. that's tough and and, and now uh, I, I know you you're probably tired of me asking you how you how you're doing right now but did it affect you in your marriage? Did it affect you on jobs? Um, did you ever have any like anger spurts? Um, I don't want to say you, you said that you know you really didn't have anything that triggered you, but to to go through the beatings that you went through, and and, and I've and I've seen the videos, I've I've heard the audios, and I'm trying to place it in my mind. How in the world do you surgically remove? Uh, underwear from someone's skin, uh, a child. How do you how do you surgically remove the underwear uh, from someone's flesh? I mean, what kind of an adult would do something like this? Well, <clears throat> the thing is, I think a lot of the people that did this um, probably didn't want to do it, and they they were they weren't paid a lot of money. But you sort of had to join the the club. I called it. You had to become a beater. Or you had to lose your job, and uh, basically, when you were beaten with me, what they did is they took me to the uh, to the hospital, and uh, they actually soak you in Epsom salts in the ba- uh, Epsom salt in the bathtub oh. for about a half an hour, mm. and then when your clothing is good enough to be removed, they cut off what they can, then they lay you on your stomach, and Doctor Wexler, whoever the doctor is at that time, comes in and uh, sees whether you need to be sutured up. Now, some boys didn't need to be sutured; they were able to just put, uh, for example, what they call butterfly stitches on them, which is a Band-Aid cut in a certain way to hold hold their buttocks together uh, until they healed up. Uh, now, I, I did work at the hospital, and at 12 years old, uh, I actually had to suture some of the boys that came out of the White House. I had to suture them up because Dr. Wexler had glasses on that looked like Coke bottles, and he would get down there, and he'd be, he'd be trying to suture half an inch away from where the cut was, He'd say, boy, get over here, get over here, you do this. I'll tell you what to do. And uh, and believe me, there were times when boys didn't even get anything to deaden the where they were being sutured up at, uh, especially if you ran away because there was a couple of cases where, uh, don't I get any Novocaine, don't I get it? No, runaways don't get, uh, don't get Novocaine. And they'd suture these boys up without any Novocaine or anything. Wow. So not So after the beating, they got... Even worse pain from the Epsom salt, I'm sure. Oh, that stung. That was that was bad. That was really bad. Ooh. Hmm. That's tough. 
You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm almost at a loss for words, Greg, because I'm just imagining, you know, I'm putting this into my mind, and, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around the type of individual that would do something like this, not to an adult, not to, you know, maybe someone who is an enemy of theirs, but to a child. Well, now there's something you need to keep in mind uh, that a lot of people don't understand. And that is, now, if you walked into the supermarket today or into Walmart and some little child, say, three years old, started throwing a fit and the parents grabbed them and whacked them in the butt four or five times, they probably had the police called on them. Well, back in the 1950s and early 60s, if you saw that, they'd say, well, the little kid, uh, you, somebody needs to straighten him up. He's getting exactly what he deserves. Deserves. So that's the way it was. Everybody looked at it like that's just the way it was. Nobody was being – it's not like you just picked, you know, five or six or seven guys out of a crowd uh, that just had the heart like Hitler to beat kids. Nobody thought nothing of it. That's just the way it was. That was the times and the day. Mm. What do you, let me ask you about the parents back then and the parents now. Do you think the parents back then were a little bit more aggressive physically than the parents uh, that we have now? Well, yeah, certainly I think they were, but I think the parents of today would probably like to be a little more aggressive, but, you know, who wants to go to jail for swatting their kid one time on the rear end? I mean, the yeah. old thing of uh, as bad as I was beaten, I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in uh, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. I believe in that 100%. Yeah, but you know what, Mr. Kaiser, I want to ask you: How involved were the were the judges and the lawyers and the sheriff and police officers, the, the high-ranking officials? How involved were they with uh, the White House and, and how you guys were treated in the reform school? Well, I don't think anybody came around that much because you have to remember the, the believe it or not, the Florida School for Boys at Mariana was ran by the Department, Florida Department of Agriculture. So the main concern was, you know, getting the crops and everything out of there. Um, there were some boys that would tell their parents. Now, any boy that was beaten really badly, they were taken up to a place. It's called lockup. I thought it was Pierce Hall, but evidently I was wrong. Uh, if you were beaten really bad and you had visitors come every week, uh, your visitors, say, in Mariana, which is an hour west of Tallahassee, and your parents drove all the way up from Miami and they showed up on a Sunday to, to visit you, and you happened to be beaten on Saturday, and it was so bad that, you know, they weren't going to let you see them, they would just say, the boy, uh, you know, was bad, he's in uh, lockup, and so there's no visitation. They'd keep boys in lockup two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten weeks until they healed up. And then when the parents would come back, they would show them, you know, their bruised bottom, and they'd say, well, that doesn't look that bad. Well, you know, even a car tire changes color after a while, you know. So they were pretty good at hiding anything and everything. Mm. Wow, I can, you know, again, the, just the idea that human beings would treat children like this, you know. I mean, what was worse, the fact that maybe you got out of line or the fact that they thought it was okay to just brutalize a child? Well, even Mr. Tidwell, who's one of the ones that's still alive, he, he was interviewed and he said, uh, we didn't beat those kids. I mean, we spanked them. They respected me, and I respected them. Well, I think he firmly believes that. I mean, it was a beating. It was, I mean, it was a beating that you absolutely cannot imagine. It was so bad. When you're laid on a bed and hit with those two pieces of leather with a piece of sheet metal in it, and they hit you anywhere from 20 to 100 times, some more, some even more, 
uh, where you're totally black when you walk out of there. I was so bloody that nobody could even recognize who I was. When somebody can beat you like that, you would think that they would know that this is far beyond child abuse. But that was just the day. That was just the way it was. And and I, and I guess part of it, too, was this. And I, I really hate to say this. I, I hate to say that maybe we were partly responsible, too. But here's the way it was. When you're in a reform school and you're 12 or 13 years old, you have to remember there's a lot of bad things going on there besides just the guards or the cottage fathers. Some of these boys were pretty mean characters. Now, I mean, even some of the ones who were just there for smoking cigarettes or skipping school. You had a lot of bullies. You had a lot of people who were always trying to take advantage of the other boys, taking their candy or whatever they get from their folks. And so you had to walk around saying, I ain't worried about the White House. I can take it. I'm a man. And then when you go to bed at night, you cover your head and you cry not to sob as the tears roll down your cheek. The next morning, you got a clear face and a clean face. And you walk around another day thinking how brave you are. You, that's the way you had to act. And so when you acted like that to protect yourself from the other boys, these cottage fathers do this, well, I'll show that little bastard when I get him down at the White House Saturday morning. And when they, and when they have a, a child in, in the White House, take us there with you. When, you. when you walked into the White House, when you found out that you were going to the White House for the very first time, the very first time that you found out and they were walking you to the White House, take us uh, from those steps with you. Well, I remember having to, I, w- I was sort of lucky the first time because I didn't know about it. I was just told to go to, to Dr. Curry's office, who was the psychologist. And uh, I went over and he told me to sit down. And a few minutes later, Mr. Hatton and Mr. Tidwell showed up. And uh, they said, come with me. And I thought, oh, God, am I going to the White House? My heart started beating real fast. And uh, But we didn't go to the White House. We walked over to his office. He used to sit down on that bench there. And then I guess about maybe, oh, 15, 20, 30 minutes later, other boys started arriving. And then they lined us up and marched us out, and we started marching past the uh, the dining hall. And I knew right then and there we were going to the White House. Um, the door opened. I think I was the first one in line. And when he opened the door, of course, this smell just hit me. I mean, it was just this musky, um, musky smell, it, almost like uh, what is this stuff that grows in walls that you're supposed to be careful of? Mold. Mold, yeah, it smelled real moldy. And I sort of gasped, and when I stepped up, my I, I tripped on that one little step there, and I fell into the doorway. And uh, the guy reached down and grabbed me by the back of the shirt and jerked my shirt up, and the button fell off because I remember writing about this. I was so scared that everything was in slow motion, and I watched this button as it rolled down the little hallway and went around the corner. And then he pulled me up, and I reached up to pull my shirt down from my around my throat because I couldn't breathe. And then he hit me in the back of the head with his fist as hard as he could, which bloodied my nose. Well, by now, I was screaming, and I, thought, I didn't care whether anybody thought I was a wimp or whatever because I was just scared to death. He told me to get up, and I couldn't get up, so they grabbed me by the arms. They pulled me down the hallway. The other boys walked in behind me. They threw me on the floor in the room and uh, told me to get up on the bed. I couldn't, so they got me up onto the bed and uh, bite that pillow, and there was blood all over the pillow. Uh, not this time, but the, the second time I went, I was actually put my face down onto the pillow, and I felt something, and I raised it up, and there was a piece of tongue or a piece of lip or something that had been bitten off by one of the other boys hours before. Well, I just freaked out, and I screamed, and I 
Oh, well, that was the second time. But this time, uh, I turned towards the wall. He told me to bite the pillow, and I just sort of closed my mouth and pushed my face down to the pillow. You grabbed the bars at the head of the bed, and then I felt something slide out from under the pillow. Now, I hadn't, I'd heard about the strap, but I'd never seen it. And then I heard him breathing, and then all of a sudden, and I turned over real quick to my left, and there he was. He had that strap back, and that man, I knew he was going to kill me when I saw the look on his face. Get back on that way, and I jumped up off the bed. When I did, he hit me across the face with that strap and just started beating me. I jumped down towards the end of the bed. It's just like a little army cot, and there's nowhere to go go because these are cement walls. There's a little bitty, little bitty uh, uh, window at the top, which is probably about maybe oh, 12 inches wide and four inches high. And I was trying to make it up to that window, and they were just beating me half to death. Finally, I made it onto the floor. And uh, they had me get back on the bed. In fact, they had to put me on the bed because I couldn't walk. I was shaking so bad. And uh, had me face the wall and uh, said, all right, you get up again. We're going to start over. And they started beating me. And the last I remember was about 30 licks, and that's the last I remember. Somebody told me I got 62 licks. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was uh, sitting in Mr. Hatton's office and uh, waiting to go to the bathroom. And uh, I got up, and the guy said, uh, you better sit down, boy. I said, I got, I got to go to the bathroom, sir. And he said, well, right there. He pointed to the bathroom and said, make it quick. And I says, one of these days I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to tell what you're doing here. He says, that's a good way to wake up dead tomorrow morning, sonny boy. And that's when I walked into the bathroom. And when I looked in the mirror, I just screamed. And then I covered my mouth because I didn't want the other. I'd already come to my senses. I didn't want the other boys to think I'd been crying. And uh, what I saw in the mirror, I will never forget. And I think what I saw in that mirror has affected my life more than anything else that has ever happened to me. All the sexual molestations in the orphanage, none of that compares to the monster that I saw in that mirror. I'll remember that sight till the day I die. Wow. I mean, you, this is really tough for me to listen to. I'm, I'm just going to be, you know, frank with this because I cannot imagine someone beating a child. 62 times with a leather strap laced with metal. That is just, that's that's inhumane. I mean, I don't, I've seen people treat animals that they were killing better than that. I know. Well, the thing is, you have to remember, this. their philosophy was one thing. Their philosophy was, we're going to beat goodness into these boys by beating the badness out of them. And it didn't work. I, in the last, um, I'm setting up a reunion here on in Brunswick, Georgia, on uh, uh, next month, which is uh, March, on March 21st and 22nd. I've got about 25 of the guys coming, and I've seen the films of some of them. Uh, some of these guys have been in prison eight, nine times. Um, even the ones that went on to make a decent life for themselves. Uh, like me, some has been married four times. I've been married. This is my sixth marriage. Um, I was never a bad person. I don't use drugs. I've never drank. Not to speak. I'll have a beer, maybe two beers a year is all I drink. And uh, I found out that for a while I thought it was just me. I mean, just it was the women. It wasn't me. I'm not a bad guy. I've never struck one of my wives. I've ne- I don't think I've ever spanked one of my children, ever. And... uh I thought, it's just the women. And uh, then finally, after the fifth marriage, I said, hey, you know, how many times does it take, buddy, before you figure out it's you? 
So I went to see a psychologist, and I said, what's the problem here? And when I started explaining all this to him, he said, well, that's, this is the problem. You being in the orphanage, the molestations, the beatings at the White House. And then I started reaching these other guys. And how many times have you been married? Uh, I've been married five times. I've been married four times. Uh, I've been married uh, three times. I'll never get married again. No woman can stand me. And what it is is every one of these guys, not one of them, though they can be nice guys, they can be kind and gentle guys, they're not affectionate guys. They just can't show affection. They rarely ever tell their wives or their children or their friends that they love them. In fact, I remember something that happened here not long ago. Uh, the girl that helped me put my book together, her name is Carol, and she works for HCI Publications. And uh, they, they flew me down there, and I worked for three or four days with her, and I went to her house, and I met her husband and her children and everything. And she was just such a wonderful, wonderful girl. And I remember when the book came out, and uh, she called me one day to ask me a question. And, oh, one of the stories I wrote was about a jump rope that we managed to get hold of. And when she sent me the first copy of the book, in with the book in the package was a jump rope. And I knew she bought that because of that story. And she says, well, I better go, Roger. You know, you, you have a nice day. I said, Carol, she says, what? I don't know what it was. It was this overpowering feeling that come over me. I said, Carol, I love you. She says, I love you too, Roger. And I hung up, and I thought, it's getting to me a little bit here. I thought, you know, she's the first friend I've ever had, ever in my life, that I ever uttered the words, I love you too. Mm. It's just amazing. It's just, <laughs> how, how can you love friends? I mean, you can barely love your wife and your kids. How, do you, how could you love your friends? I love her. I love her because she's a good person. And, of course, I've learned this now through my grandkids, you know, of what love feels like. Right, right. Mr. Kaiser, we know that this happened back in the 50s. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah, the uh, late, late 50s. Okay. I want to ask you, you know, during that time, there was a lot of race issues. How were the black kids treated? Well, I guess the best example that I can give is this, if, if people can catch it. I, I've heard that the blacks, the black boys were treated worse than the white boys. The, it is absolutely impossible for anyone, black or white, to have been beaten worse than I was that day in the White House. And still, the black boys were beaten worse than that. So I guess my statement is, it's impossible to beat anybody worse than you beat me. And they still beat them worse than me. That's the only way I can describe how bad it was. And you know what's really bad? Some of the stories that are coming forward now is this. And this is one of the things I think that really disturbs me about some of the black men that worked at the school who beat these boys. And that is some of these black men, they knew that they, as far as the white men were concerned, uh, and can I use the language that was used in that time? Sure, go ahead. Okay. Uh, anybody that was white during that era, they were all niggers and spicks. And so some of the black men who had decent jobs up there, they were out to show the white men by beating the black boys worse than the white men beat the white boys to show them that they weren't niggers. They said, I'll show you how I beat this little nigger, like it was going to make them accept it as being white. And that's terrible when your own somebody of your own race knows how you've been degraded as a black person and that they even degrade you themselves. Do you, do, you, do you see the point I'm trying to make? Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. disgraceful. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how those men can live with themselves. 
And I want to ask you this too before before Brian asks you a question. Did you see any of the blacks? I mean, to be beaten like that, uh, and, and I and I and and I'm not trying to say or say judge the blacks were beaten worse or the whites were beaten worse, but your children. Did you see any of the blacks? I mean, we're talking about it in the fifties. Right. Were, were any of the? Did you see or hear about any of the blacks being killed? Because you know, to beat someone like that, we're talking about that person going into shock or having a heart attack, being beaten like that and passing out and that kind of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Did, did you hear or see uh, any of the blacks being killed or or any of the whites for that matter? Well, I didn't act. Well, I only saw one white boy that was killed, and he was put, well, actually two. The one I can't be sure of, not the one that we carried his body down after he'd gone to, I, I, he was so tore up on his legs and, and his back and his back of his legs and his, his uh, thighs that I thought he, he had tried to run away and the, and the farmer's hounds had got him. But I found out that wasn't the case at all. He was uh, actually taken to the White House, and they beat him so bad that his Levi's were cut. And the nurse, Womack, had me and another boy, I don't remember who he was, actually take him down the hallway by his arms and legs. He was bleeding so bad and uh, put him in the bathtub waiting for the doctor. Well, we waited two hours, and he never showed up. And then Nurse Womack come out and told me to go down and clean up the examination room. And I said, well, what about that boy? And she closed the door and says, there's nothing more we can do for that boy. So I take for granted the boy died. The one black boy uh, that was killed, uh, and uh, actually my friend... uh, Dick Cologne witnessed that. One of the black boys, I think, brought some laundry over uh, from uh, the black side using a tub, you know, like they pull air aircraft with, and they pull little trailers. And evidently, he got into some kind of an argument uh, for one reason or another with one of the uh, instructors, and he instructed some of the boys to put him in the tumble dryer, and of course, that it killed him. And then Dick was evidently in the bathroom at that time, so when they cleared the building to get the body out, Dick come walking out, and he saw that boy going around the dryer, and they were looking at him. And he, even to this day, he finds it hard to live with himself because he couldn't help that boy because he knew if he did that they would, uh, you know, put him in the dryer. And uh, the uh, I had a, a, a woman named Joan contact me from Jacksonville, Florida, here uh, about two weeks ago, and she sent me a letter and said that her husband, uh, who is white, uh, actually drank himself to death at 37 years old. And he was he was really mean to her. He was mean to the children. And uh, she finally left him and moved away to another state. And when the, I can think the kids were maybe five or six years old at that time. By the time they were like 9, 10, or 11, she moved back to Jacksonville, and they wanted to see their father, and he didn't live there any longer. He had moved to uh, Louisiana. And uh, so she contacted his parents. They said, well, he's straightened up. He doesn't drink anymore. Uh, so she allowed the kids to go to uh, Louisiana to visit him. And he, they were there about two weeks. Finally, they found out he'd been drinking and was beating the kids again, so she brought them back. And uh, then finally he died. And uh, so nobody really said anything much about that meeting until, I guess, about two weeks ago. Uh, the woman saw something about the White House in Mariana on the news, and she went onto the Internet and she went into our website. And when she started reading these stories that the other guys have put on there, uh, she uh, she called her son, who's now 30, and said, I want you to go in here to this website. I think I found out why your dad was the way he was. And so he went in and he stayed up all night reading the stories on the website. Next morning he calls his mother and says, I need you to come over here. So she went over and he says, you remember that time when I was about 12 and you let me go to dad's um, uh, in Louisiana? She said, yeah said, well, we knew he was in Mariana, and he was always talking about something that happened there. 
and says he got real drunk one night. He said, "Come here, boys. I'm sorry I treat your mom and you like this, but I'm going to tell you why." And he said he told us that he was pulled out of bed one night with uh, two other white boys and were taken out by a field, driven out to a, to a field by a fence. And they said, when these lights come on, when the spotlights come on or the searchlights, whatever they called it, come on, anything you say, you see move, you shoot and you kill or it's going to be you. He says they stood there, 30 seconds later, whatever it was, the lights came on and here's these three black boys running across the field. He said they shot them dead. He said they took the guns from them, took them back to the cottage, said get in your bed, you ever say anything, you'll be next. So stories like this are really starting to come out of the uh, of the woodwork. In fact, there was another story I got here about a week ago, which we're checking out now, about one of the uh, one of the black instructors actually physically beat a boy to death with his fist after he'd hit him about three licks in the White House, and the boy come off the bed said, "You're not going to do this to me anymore," and he actually beat him to death. So we're checking that out now. So there was a lot of deaths there. Mm. Wow. wow. Yeah, this this is wow. You know, and I think the most important part about this whole interview is that the word has to get out. People have to know about what happened so that it does not happen again. You know, and wow. Well, you know, one of the things too that a lot of people uh when they read my book or they go to the website and they read the stories a lot of people tend to think, well, you know, 1950s, 60s, that's the old days. What has that got to do with today? Well, uh, it has a lot to do with today. If your son or your daughter marries the daughter of one of these guys or the grandchild of one of these guys who come out of there who was like this guy who drank himself to death, uh, uh, you know, if you want you know, your daughter or your granddaughter to be married, three or four times because some guy, you know, treats them like that. Uh, I mean, these people are still around. It's, it's been transferred on to many of them's children and grandchildren. You know, and not just that. What about the guys who actually inflicted the pain and the, the damage to these children? You know, how did they raise their own children? Well, I remember getting a call. The one that I knew, no still alive. Uh, uh, quite a few of them were dead because I tracked down their birth certificates and everything and their pay records. Uh this one, Troy Tidwell, that still lives in Mariana, um, I, I called him back in uh, 2000, and it's when my first book came out. And what I was trying to do, I didn't tell him that he was the guy that beat me or anything. I didn't say it because I figured that would do no good. But I asked him if he knew where Robert Sealander was, which was my cottage house brother, which really saved me from three of the five. I went to the White House five times, but I only got beat twice, and he saved me those three times. He also kept me, when I was drug out of bed one night, from being taken to the rape room, which was another thing they did up there. And I wanted to hunt him down. That was most important to me, that I find him and, and thank him for saving me. And uh, I guess we talked for probably a half hour or so, and then I hung up. And then uh, the next day or two, uh, I got a phone call, and, and I told him that I'd studied law for a couple of years. And the phone rang, and I said, hello. He said, this is uh, Mrs. Tidwell, Troy's wife. I said, yes, ma'am. Says Troy said something. You talked to him the other day that you'd studied law for a couple of years. I said, Yes, ma'am, I did. And she says, Well, we're wondering if you could help us. And I said, What's the problem? Now I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was because you know, being an orphan, I'm not into this. What a cousin and all this stuff is. I've never learned all that. Um, she says either our son or our cousin or our uncle, somebody in their family, is a police officer, 
and he beat somebody to death, and they've charged him with murder, and we was wondering if you could help us. I said, well, let me look into the case, and I'll, I'll get back with you. And I hung up, and that was the end of that conversation. Never called him back. So even that may be a, a portion of, you know, how that spread in that family. Of course, his granddaughter says he's a wonderful guy, kind and loving guy. Wow. Of course, we also know that a lot of the uh, guys that come out of, uh, you know, the guys that were doing the old Nazi German thing, uh, you know, that got away and went to South America, after they got away, they turned out to be nice, kind grandfathers, too. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't excuse what they did. Absolutely not. You know, I, and and again, I think the the big the hardest thing to do, and the thing that has to be done, is that there has to be some type of closure. But it's difficult when mostly everyone that it happened to, you know, the the perpetrators are all dead. Right. You know. And so, I don't know. I mean, it's just I, I, I sit back and I think about what happened to you and to others, and you know, it's almost it, it makes me to where I'm almost sick to my stomach because I couldn't believe that, you know, let's say it was our enemies, right? Right. Let's say this that the person that you know that they were doing this to had done some bad things, had done some wrong things, killed some people, what have you. You know, I still couldn't justify it. You know, I still couldn't justify the type of torture because that's what it was. It was, it was utter torture. Oh, a- a- absolutely. Well, you know, and I and I can say this, uh, standing before God, I can say this: if I was to meet Mister Tidwell walking down the street, I wouldn't necessarily want to shake the guy's hand because I think anybody that could do that to a boy certainly doesn't deserve any respect. But I have no hard feelings against any of those men who beat me. I don't hold them responsible, and I think I said this on the last show. If Mr. Tidwell hadn't have beat me, Mr. Hatton would have beat me. If Mr. Hatton had to beat me, the preacher would have beat me. If the preacher hadn't have beat me, the nurse would have beat me. It's the state of Florida. It's the policy. That's who I, I hold responsible. So though I don't particularly like Mr. Tidwell, I wouldn't be disrespectful to him. I mean, he's an he's a, you know, 84-year-old man, and I have to treat him as that. But uh, a lot of people say... I don't know how you could feel that way. You know, uh, I mean, if I was him, I'd almost want to kill him. And I says, well, then if I was to go kill him, that would make me just as bad as him. I'm not like him. I don't want to be like him. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't even slap him. I'm not going to give him the pleasure of having me slap him to think that he made me like him. I'm not going to give him that pleasure. Now, that's powerful. And, And I say that because, and Brian has heard me say this so many times, life will do... Uh, one of two things to you, it'll make you bitter or it'll make you better. And you chose not to be bitter. Well, and, and, you know, there's, there, there, there's two sides to that, and this is something I think that a lot of people don't understand, too. A lot of people say, well, let's see, of all you guys that are getting together, two of you are millionaires, you're an author, we have some businessmen, we have a bunch of guys who were captains in the Army, one's a, an Army Ranger, uh, some are businessmen, you know, I don't understand how some of you succeeded and the rest of them didn't. Well, there's a very simple explanation for that. And that is when we walked out of there, every one of us boys were full of nothing but hatred against society. There was no difference in their feelings or our feelings. 
And it's not the object of taking lemons and making lemonade. That has nothing to do with anything. What it has to do with, the guys walk out and they say, I'm going to take and I'm going to kill and I'm going to rape and I'm going to steal and I hate all of you. And that's the road they travel. The rest of us come out of there, but the difference being is that we take those same hatred feelings and we say, I'm going to prove you're wrong about me. I'm going to become a millionaire, and I'm going to show you you're wrong. So we used the same hate in a different matter, in a, under, in, a, in a different method. But it's the same thing. It's the choice you make. Do you yeah. follow what I'm saying here? Yeah, it's not that they straighten some of us out and they say, well, yeah, I think you owe the... Florida School for Boys, something for becoming an author, becoming a millionaire. We don't owe them anything. No, if we, we don't. Because we became what we became what we became through hatred. Hmm. I have another question too, and I don't know if, how much you can answer because of the litigation that's going on right now, the investigation. But why is it taking the state of Florida so long? to do their investigation. And I'm pretty sure that they're going to go out to the graves and they're going to dig up uh, some of the boys and do testing on them to see, you know, who who they are and that type of thing. But, you know, how do you feel uh, right now with them taking so long to do it? Do you think that um, they are trying to get their facts together so that you guys won't have a, a clear and shut case against them? Well, there's there's a couple of ways to answer that. Um, number one, I, I've heard from, now when I say boys, I'm talking about men because they'll always be boys to me because even though I don't remember any of them, they, we were boys, so we'll always be boys when we're talking about that time. Um, some of the boys have called me and they said, uh, I sure don't like the attitude of some of these uh, Florida investigators. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you know, they're asking us for facts, and, uh, you know, they want to know where the bodies are. And we say, well, you know, how do we know where the bodies are? We showed you where the one graveyard is, and we know pretty well part of the kids that are there. Uh, we can't tell you where the other 50 to 200 kids are because, you know, like uh, we got in trouble for stepping off the sidewalk. How are we going to sneak out of the out of the cottage at night and see where they're burying these boys? We can't. Uh, that's the first part of it. And they're, oh, and what they're saying is, is well, we really don't understand what's going on here. I mean, you know, you after all, you were a bunch of juvenile delinquents, and you got your butt spanked, so we don't see what the big deal is. Well, that tells me something. When investigators are, are talking like that, that tells me they're not really looking for the facts. The next thing is, why was it covered up for so long? Well, number one, nobody was going to believe that uh, almost a Nazi concentration camp for children uh, was operating in the United States of America. Nobody would believe it. The next thing is, even if it was, that's just the way it was. But here's the main reason. And, well, the other point I was going to make was, I don't understand why Charlie Crist doesn't really get on the ball with this thing, because Charlie Crist and all these people who are in power now were children themselves. They had nothing to do with any of this. So I don't understand if there, in fact, is going to be a cover-up. Why is, uh, what's the big to-do? They're not guilty of anything. Find out the facts. If it's true, then expose it. If it's not, then we'll cover it up. But here's the main reason, and this may be the reason uh, for Charlie Crist's attitude or his uh, the position he's taken. Uh, as I said earlier, the Florida School for Boys at Mariana was ran by the uh, department, the Florida Department of Agriculture, 
and there was a, a cattle ranch, and there was a hog farm, and there was sweet potatoes and corn, hundreds and thousands of acres of peanuts and all this stuff. Well, this was being grown for the boys to eat and take care of themselves. Well, millions of dollars of this food was being sifted off from the school, and boys were being uh, child labor, or you call it, brought downtown and made to load a lot of this stuff onto um, railroad cars 16 hours a day. And again, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old boys. And Dick Cologne was one of the ones. He's a millionaire, and he's one of the ones that was having to do this. Uh, and they were selling off all this food. So word was put out around town that if, uh, well, a notice was actually sent out. If any of these boys uh, happened to get away from that school, and there was no fences at that time, uh, if you get them dead or alive, and it doesn't matter to us which way, you get $100 and a side of beef. And uh, and if you ever open your mouths, uh, well, we don't want this investigation happening, not because we don't want the boys killed and beaten and raped and all this stuff, but if they start an investigation about that, then it's, they're liable to find out about you know all the money being sifted off from the school. So you keep your mouths closed, and if you don't, uh, your house could be burnt down, your cattle could be poisoned, your, uh, you could be shot, uh, or your farm loan could be called in by the P, uh, PSA or whatever, the P, PSA or PCS, I don't remember which it was. Uh, so everybody pretty well kept their mouth shut. Mm. And boys just continued to die. So this thing was about money and power. Absolutely. Wow. Amazing. You know, and... In, in, and I think it was all under the guise of reforming children, you know, because, I mean, you send them to a reform school, you want to try to make them better. Well, that's it. The term reform school means to reform. It's a school to reform. Mm-hmm. Well, they reformed all right, but they did it exactly the opposite of what it should have been. Right. Mm. Now, um, I want to touch a little bit on, your, on the books that you wrote. You know, tell us about them real briefly. Well, basically, I've written, I think, either 19, 20, or 21 books. The White House Boys and American Tragedy is, is the one that just came out. Out of all the books I've written, this is the only book where I've used foul language. And I had to use that not so much because of what we boys said, but the way that we were talked to and the way we were ordered around and all the four-letter words that we were called and all the nasty names we were called. Uh, I felt that in order to tell the story... Uh, that you had to tell it exactly the way it was. And most of my books, I'm known for, I mean, I only have a sixth-grade education. So I'm known for when I write my stories about child abuse, I write in a child's voice. I can remember exactly how those men looked. I remember what they smelled like. I remember the expressions on their faces, how they breathed, everything. And when I write these stories, I go back at 12 years old and I write it in that manner, as though that 12-year-old boy who's fixing to be beaten is is telling the story, not a not a 63-year-old man. Nobody wants to hear a 63-year-old man tell a story about how a 12-year-old is beaten. What does he know? He doesn't know anything. He may remember it, but when you can feel it and smell it and taste it, then you can you can explain to the reader exactly how a child feels at the exact moment that they're being abused. Mm. That's got to be tough. Uh, do you um, 
This is Greg. Do you now, I mean, are you reaching out to the other guys that went through all of this with you? Yes. Yes, we are, uh, uh, as I said, we're having a, uh, actually having a uh, a reunion on uh, uh, the 21st and 22nd of next month. Uh, And we're actually starting on a documentary. And uh, so we're going to film as many of the guys that will let us. And we have to be very careful because... I mean, rape's bad for anybody, whether it's male or female, but uh, it is rather difficult for someone who is 60 or 70 years old to have to come forward, and they may tell about the beatings, which everybody else is telling about, uh, but we have only a few who are willing to really sit down and talk about, you know, having been sexually molested or raped at the White House or in the uh, rape room. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, I can honestly say out of the anywhere between 135 and 150 men that I've talked to in the last month, um, I can say, and these guys are anywhere from 60 to 70 years old, I can tell you out of that, um, I'll guarantee you 115 of them uh, started crying when they were talking to me. And that, that showed me one thing. It showed me that though these guys have picked themselves up by the bootstraps and moved on in their life, child abuse never heals itself. It stays with you to the day you die. Wow. That's tough. Wow. That's tough. Brian, and, I think we have a call. You want to take? We, we could take one call if you if you're okay with that, Mister. Sure, Bill. that's fine. Okay. All right, we have a caller from the seven five seven area code. Caller, go ahead. Hi, how you doing? Uh, this is Kirby. Uh, Hey man, uh, I, I caught part of your story, but I read some of it uh, online, man. If you just still just, oh man, just God is awesome, man. And uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm gonna put you in my prayers, man, that you get this done and get and get this out of here because, uh, man, just to have uh, ha- have it happen like this in my own country, much as I love America, man. My question is for you, man, for you to be uh, America, how do you feel about America, you, you know, now? I mean, do you feel like that 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 just because it happened like that in that state, do you feel like that it let you down uh, and it's taking you, like, like they, since they want to sweep it up under the rug, does it, how, how does it make you feel that they're trying to not get it out there and this is, free speech and it's supposed to be land of the free and it's something happened so horrible to you. How does it make you feel about America? Well, I try to keep in mind that uh, in spite of whether I have positive or negative feelings about America, I try to always keep in mind that it could be a lot worse for me somewhere else. Um, I mean, there's people overseas who are being killed and herded into camps every day. Um, I have to be thankful that um, I have a house to live in and that I can be warm in the winter and I can be cool in the summer and I have a refrigerator and I have groceries and I have cold milk to drink. Um, I have a car to drive. Um, I'm able to go fishing if I want. I'm thankful for those things. I think that basically... We all have to love our country in spite of a lot of things that we've suffered uh, because it could be a lot worse if we were somewhere else. And I think that uh, I think I always have to keep in mind um, 
Well, I guess I'm trying to say two things at one time. I love my fellow man. I love my neighbors. But I will always sleep with one eye open, not because we're Americans or somebody else is German or somebody else is Russian. I think as a child, seeing what I saw on TV with Hitler and what was happening and what's happened in other countries, uh, I think I'll always have a distrust for my fellow man, not American or anything else, just my fellow man in general that, you know, if things got tough, and I'm a little worried about things getting tough right now in this country, that, you know, if things really went bad, I mean, am I going to have to shoot my neighbor neighbor if he comes over trying to steal my food or if a gang comes down the street and tries to rape my wife or my daughter or granddaughter? I really don't have a lot of faith in people, and I think that's what it did to me. And I wish I didn't feel that way. I really wish I didn't feel that way. Hmm. Mr. Carlos, I want you to give out your information, um, give out your website if you have one, and also uh, if there's uh, some others that were victims of uh, the White House incident, um, a way for them to contact you. Okay. Um, well, our website is, they can, they can find the website on thewhitehouseboys.com. That's thewhitehouseboys.com. Almost anybody could put in my name, Roger Dean Kaiser, R-O-G-E-R-D-E-A-N-K-I-S-E-R, and uh, almost all my stories will come up because I have books and stories about child abuse I've written all over the world. Um, and the book, The White House Boys, is uh, you know in almost any major bookstore now or they can order it for you. you know, and basically, to I guess to... Uh, well, they can always contact me uh, through the website because I have my... My name and address and phone number is there. Uh, or my email address is trampoline1, all spelled out, at earthlink.net. That's T-R-A-M-P-O-L-I-N-E-O-N-E at earthlink.net. Hmm. We have about two minutes now. And if, if I could squeeze this question in there, the question uh, one of our listeners wanted to ask is, they're, they're wondering what step are you taking to uh, overcome um, your feelings toward what happened to you? Well, I think one thing guides me, and that is uh, the way I feel Well, uh, is a sadness. I live with that sadness. But I think that anybody who has been abused sexually or otherwise as a child, the one thing that is very important is this, and that is the greatest thing you have to give is to make sure you control yourself that this, that your children and your grandchildren never have to grow up with those feelings. For that, if you can accomplish that, believe me, you are a hero. You deserve a medal if you can accomplish that because there's a monster that lives in anyone who was abused as a child. If you can just control it and not let it spread, you are absolutely a hero. Wow. Wow. Well, Mr. Kaiser, uh, we're just about out of time. We want to thank you for joining us again and also let you know that you're always welcome back to join us. Yeah, I'll be anytime you want me on. Just give me a call, and I'll certainly be glad to do it. Thank all right. So much, and for all of our listeners, please go back and listen to the show when it's archived. Uh, with that being said, you've been listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour. We thank you for joining us. We ask that you join us again on Blog Talk Radio, ASE Motivation, on Monday, 9 p.m. Good evening, God bless you, and good night.